they were the most sadistic serial killing duo in U.S. history. They shared a fear of nuclear war and thought they'd be the ones to repopulate the earth with sex slaves they held captive in a secret torture chamber in the mountains. In the end, it was just dumb luck they ever got caught at all. Let's recap. Hey, welcome to True Crime Recaps. I'm Amy, and I want to thank you for spending a little time with us today. Our story starts on June 2nd, 1985, when John Callis walked into South City Lumber Company in San Francisco. He spent the last 28 years as a reserve officer with the San Francisco Police Department. If something didn't look right, John was the first to notice. He spotted a short Asian man holding a large vice. In case you're not into tools, vices are the clamps you mount on the end of a workbench. They keep stuff in place and are often pretty heavy. It's not the kind of thing you can easily steal. But John got the feeling this guy didn't plan on paying for the $75 tool. He watched the thief walk out the front door and toward his car, a gold Honda Prelude. John and a cashier followed the man across the parking lot. They must have spooked him because the guy dropped the vice in the trunk and ran off. John looked inside the trunk to find the stolen vice and a semi-automatic with a silencer. That's when a bearded man calling himself Scott Stapley approached and asked to pay for the vice. It was all a big misunderstanding, he said. His friend didn't mean to steal it. Still, John knew BS when he smelled it. Besides, the cops were already on the way. When South San Francisco police got to the scene, they ran the Honda's license plate. Well, the plate was registered to Mr. Lonnie Bond, who was missing, along with his wife and infant son. Then they ran the serial number on the gun. It belonged to Scott Stapley, the man standing right in front of them. But that didn't make any sense because Scott Stapley went missing around the same time as Lonnie. And for a missing person, this guy seemed awfully calm. He showed the cops his driver's license bearing the name R. Scott Stapley, but this guy didn't look anything like the man in the picture. The real Scott was clean-shaven with long, wavy hair. This guy looked like Murray from Stranger Things. The vehicle identification number told yet another story. The Honda belonged to Paul Kozner, who'd been missing since early November 1984. He'd listed his gold 1980 Honda Prelude for sale and was going to go meet up with a prospective buyer, but nobody ever saw him again. The bearded man, the Murray from Stranger Thing lookalike, his real name was Leonard Lake. He and his klepto accomplice, Charles Ng, might be the most twisted serial killing duo in U.S. history. They had a knack for abducting entire families, killing the men and children, and then keeping the women as their sex slaves. Twelve people went missing between July 1984 and April 1985. By the time Charles tried to shoplift a vice in June 1985, Each case was colder than the last. None of the disappearances looked connected, but looks can be deceiving. The police could only thank dumb luck for catching Leonard and Charles. Thank God their dumb luck held. Inspectors found an electric bill under the passenger seat. It was addressed to Clara Ann Balzis, Leonard's ex-wife. The address was in Wilseyville, California, a small town about 140 miles east of San Francisco. Thankfully, Clara Lynn was still alive and well. She didn't know where Charles was, but she gave police full permission to search the Wilseyville property. It was a small house her parents had bought a long time ago. At one point, they dreamed of retiring there. 
They didn't know it had been turned into a house of horrors. In one of the bedrooms, detectives found video equipment belonging to Harvey Dubs. He and his wife and their infant son went missing in July 1984, and it was about to get even worse. Leonard had built a three-room cinder block bunker next to the driveway. Two of the rooms were behind a hidden doorway. In one room was a bed, a desk, a dresser, and some food. The second room, measuring about seven by three feet, had a dirty mattress with a foam pad, a plastic bucket, toilet paper, and a small lamp. The door only opened from the outside. If you were in there, you were trapped until someone let you out. Inside the bunker, police found a copy of The Collector, a 1963 novel written by John Fowles. The book is about a man who kidnaps a woman named Miranda. He holds Miranda captive, hoping she'll eventually fall in love with him. Spoiler alert, she doesn't. Leonard was obsessed with this book. In his personal diary, he referred to kidnapping women as Operation Miranda. Leonard and Charles were a match made in hell. They came from opposite sides of the world, but as it turned out, they had a lot in common. Leonard grew up in San Francisco with his siblings and grandmother. He was a bright yet sexually deranged child who liked photographing his sisters naked. Apparently, his mother encouraged this behavior. He'd even extort his sisters for sex and forced girls in the neighborhood to be his love slaves through blackmail and force. Some sources say Leonard liked to capture mice and dissolve them in acid. He'd use the same trick on his human victims later in life. Leonard eventually joined the Marines in 1964. He served two tours in Vietnam, but was discharged after suffering a delusional breakdown and a diagnosis of schizoid personality disorder. These are your aggressive loners, the people who actively distance themselves from close relationships. On the other side of the world, in Hong Kong, Kenneth Ng was working hard to discipline his only son, Charles, into getting good grades and doing his homework. He would routinely tie the boy down and whip him with the wooden handle on a feather duster. Charles's mom and two sisters tried to stop the savage beatings, but it was useless. Kenneth was relentless. He beat Charles almost every day. Charles was a kleptomaniac. He loved to steal. He got arrested for shoplifting at 15 years old. For that, his father sent him to a British boarding school. But Charles began stealing from other students and got himself expelled. He moved to the U.S. on a visa when he was 18. A year later, he was involved in a hit-and-run accident. He joined the Marines to avoid going to jail. Charles lied and said he was a proud U.S. citizen from Bloomfield, Indiana. And how do they not check these things? Do you... Do they not ask for, how do you, how do you lie about that to the army? Charles kleptomania got him kicked out of the army in 1981. He and two accomplices were caught stealing weapons from an armory in Hawaii. He escaped custody and fled to California. As the story goes, a 22-year-old Charles responded to a newspaper ad looking for like-minded survivalists. The apocalypse was right around the corner and this California prepper needed help building his doomsday bunker. That's when Charles met 36-year-old Leonard Lake. 
By 1981, Leonard married his second wife, Clara Lynn, a woman he nicknamed Cricket. She was a 25-year-old teaching assistant with, let's face it, the worst taste in men. They lived in a commune in Northern California, a sprawling 5,600-acre ranch that Leonard liked to call Alibi Run. He stocked the ranch with enough weapons and supplies to survive the end times that he thought was right around the corner. But instead of nuclear warfare, Charles and Leonard should have been worried about the cops. In 1982, federal agents raided the ranch. They seized a massive stash of illegal weapons and explosives. Charles was still wanted by the U.S. Marines, so he pled guilty to the theft and desertion, and he served 18 months at Leavenworth Military Prison. Meanwhile, Leonard got out on bond and skipped town. He hid out in the cabin owned by Clara Lynn's parents. The secluded two-and-a-half-acre property in the Sierra Nevada foothills was the perfect place to rebuild his bunker. It was also the ideal spot to kick off his killing spree. Leonard and his younger brother, Donald, hated each other. They got along like vampires and garlic. Leonard didn't have a dollar to his name, but Donald was doing all right for himself. In December 1982, Leonard stopped by his mother's house. He said he was on a road trip and asked Donald if he wanted to come. Against his better judgment, Donald got in the car and was never seen again. Their mother reported him missing. She couldn't shake something Leonard once said. The world would be better off without Don. On New Year's Day in 1983, Leonard rented a room in San Francisco under Donald's name. Four months later, Leonard invited his best friend, Charles Gunner, on a road trip to Vegas. Gunner left his two daughters with a babysitter and was never seen again. When Leonard returned, he said Gunner had run off with a woman. With his good friend out of the picture, Leonard began using his name as an alias. Charles linked back up with Leonard in the summer of 84. By then, Leonard had already killed two people that we know of. Now it was Charles' turn to pull the trigger. So that summer, Donald Giletti put a personal ad in a low-key newspaper offering oral sex to straight men. He included his home address. The openly gay radio DJ shared a San Francisco apartment with a man named Richard Carrazza. On July 11th, 1984, someone knocked, knocked, knocked on the door. Galetti assumed it was someone answering his ad, but instead, Charles stood on the other side, pointing a gun at Galetti's chest. He wasn't there for oral sex. He shot him once, which got Richard's attention from the back room, so he comes running out to find his roommate bleeding on the floor. Charles turned the gun on Richard and shot him in the chest, too. He fled the scene, assuming both men were dead. Little did he know Richard was clinging to life, and he had enough energy to call 911. Paramedics arrived and saved his life, but it was too late for Donald. Richard described the gunman as a short Asian man with glasses. He'd eventually identify Charles Ng as the shooter. Harvey Dubbs was starting a videotaping side hustle from the apartment he shared with his wife, Deborah, and their infant son, Sean. He put an ad in the paper looking to sell some video equipment in July of 1984. On July 25th, Harvey left his day job around 5 p.m. to meet up with a potential buyer. Meanwhile, Deborah was home speaking to her friend Karen on the phone. She said Harvey was expecting a buyer to stop by. According to Karen, someone either knocked or rang the doorbell, but Deborah quickly hung up to answer it. Karen tried to call back the next day to continue their conversation, but nobody answered. The Dubs family was never seen again. A neighbor told police that around 5.45 p.m., she saw an Asian man walking down the Dubs' front steps. He was struggling to carry a heavy suitcase. 
Nobody knows for sure what was inside, but he was met at the car by another man who helped him load it into the trunk before they both drove away. The next day, someone calling himself James Bright called Harvey's office to say he wouldn't be coming in. He had to go to Washington State for a family emergency, which was odd because Harvey was from New York and Deborah was from California. And as far as anyone knew, neither of them had family in Washington. Harvey's father filed a missing persons report that night. Two days later, another neighbor heard footsteps rummaging around in the apartment. She saw Charles walking out with two bags full of stuff. She chased him down the street, but a car pulled up and drove him away. Sadly, we don't know what happened to Harvey and little Sean. It's believed that Leonard and Charles killed them immediately and kept Deborah as their first sex slave. They used Harvey's video equipment to record a series of sadistic snuff films. According to the officers who found their tapes, Deborah was abused so badly that survival was impossible. Leonard and Charles liked using newspaper ads to target their victims. They'd pose as buyers, which helped them gain access to people's homes and cars. If they needed something like Harvey's camera equipment, they'd respond to an ad, kill the seller, and take what they wanted. Really makes you want to place an ad, huh? Paul Kozner lived with his girlfriend in San Francisco. On November 2nd, 1984, he left work early to meet a potential buyer for his Honda Prelude. He never came home. His sister filed a missing person report the following day. When he wasn't kidnapping and murdering people, Charles worked part-time for a San Francisco moving company. He and a coworker, 23-year-old Cliff Paranto, would hang out from time to time. Cliff was last seen at a bar on January 20th, 1985. He just won 400 bucks and was seen leaving with Charles. He told people he was going to go out to the country to spend his money. Charles likely killed him and stole it along with his motorcycle and most of the stuff from his apartment. A few days later, Cliff's boss got a letter saying Cliff had found a new job. The letter asked him to send his last check in W-2 to a post office box about 20 miles outside of Wilseyville. By day, 25-year-old Jeff Gerald was another one of Charles' co-workers at the moving company. By night, he was a guitar player trying to make it as a rock star in California. On February 24th, 1985, Jeff called his girlfriend from a bus station. He said he was getting $100 to help Charles with a moving job. Well, Jeff told his roommate the same thing and promised to pick up Chinese food for dinner that night. Neither one ever saw Jeff again. A few days later, Jeff's roommate came home from work to find Jeff's door open. His guitar, his amp, his clothes, his bedding, and all of his pictures were all gone. It was like Jeff just packed up and left. In mid-April 1985, 18-year-old Kathleen Allen got a disturbing phone call at the supermarket where she worked. The caller said her boyfriend, Michael Carroll, had been shot and she needed to come quickly. So she excused herself and was last seen meeting a bearded man in a nearby parking lot. Michael, who once shared a cell with Charles Ng, also disappeared. The duo claimed their final set of victims in mid-April 1985. Lonnie Bond, his fiancée Brenda O'Connor, and their infant son Lonnie Jr. rented the house next door to Leonard's Wilseyville house in January 1985. The two houses shared a gated driveway. They weren't living there long when the property manager got a call from Leonard complaining about Lonnie and Brenda, saying that they were shooting guns and leaving the driveway gate open. On April 19, 1985, their friend Scott Stapley drove some of their things up from his house in San Diego. He was never seen again. 
In May 1985, Leonard Lake called the property manager to let her know that it looked like her tenants were gone. Lonnie, Brenda, and Lonnie Jr. were never seen again. About a month later, Charles got sticky fingers at the lumber store. He escaped, but Leonard was arrested for possession of a firearm. Before the cops could tally up his body count, he ate a cyanide capsule he had hidden in his lapel. He died in the hospital four days later. Meanwhile, Charles kept running all the way to Canada, but you know what they say, you can't outrun yourself. In the end, his kleptomania got the better of him. On July 5th, 1985, he was arrested in Calgary, Alberta, after shooting a security guard in the hand. He was allegedly trying to steal a can of salmon. Canadian authorities sent him back to the U.S. to face a dozen counts of first-degree murder. Meanwhile, police tore apart the Wilseyville home. The house was furnished, get this, with items from their victims, books, electronics, towels, bedding. They noticed sleeping bag fragments scattered on the ground about a quarter mile away from the house. They were dirty, as if an animal had recently dug them up. And then they saw the bones. Police excavated the site and found Lonnie and Scott's bodies stuffed in sleeping bags. Lonnie had a plastic bag over his head, and there was a leather strap and ball gag wrapped around his neck. His wrists were bound behind him, and he had died of a single gunshot to the head. Scott was shot three times, once in the mouth, once above the eye, and once in his shoulder. His hands and ankles were bound with duct tape. A plastic bag was tied over his head. He, too, had a leather strap and ball gag around his neck. The police kept digging. Eventually, they found about 40 pounds of crushed and burned human bone. Thousands of bone and tooth fragments were buried around the property. At least four sets of teeth belonged to children younger than three. They also found a child's liver buried there. All in all, there were enough remains for 25 people. A makeshift treasure map led them to another small burial site. Inside, they found two barrels full of random stuff. The first bucket was full of personal stuff like their victim's jewelry, wallets, ID cards, and checkbooks. The other barrel contained Leonard's personal journal and some videotapes. Nobody was prepared for what they read in that 250-page journal or saw on those tapes. Leonard's journal was full of these sick and twisted thoughts toward women. He wrote stuff like God meant women for cooking, cleaning, house, and sex. And when they are not in use, they should be locked up. The tapes were even worse. They were homemade snuff films. One tape labeled M Ladies starred Deborah Dubbs, Kathleen Allen, and Brenda O'Connor. You can hear Leonard tell Brenda that everyone in the neighborhood hates her family after they moved in next door. And then he tells her they're going to give baby Lonnie to a family in Fresno. In another scene, Leonard tells Kathy Allen if she cooperates with them in 30 days, they'll drug her, blindfold her, and release her somewhere. If she doesn't, they'll shoot her and bury her in the same place they buried her boyfriend. Police identified 21 missing women, either on the tapes or in photos scattered around the torture room. Even the most hardened detectives couldn't bring themselves to watch. In February 1999, Charles was convicted of 11 of the 12 confirmed murders. The jury only found him not guilty in the Paul Kozner case. Charles tried to argue that Leonard made him do it, which is pretty convenient since Leonard ate that cyanide pill at the first sign of trouble. The judge didn't bite. Charles Ng was sentenced to death. 
But as of 2023, Charles remains on death row at San Quentin Prison. There hasn't been an execution in California since 2006. In 2019, Governor Newsom signed an executive order that banned the death penalty in California until further notice. And that's your recap. Thanks for hanging out with us today. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, go ahead and tap that subscribe button so you never miss a story. But don't go away. Catch up on more recaps right here, right now. Until next time, take care.